0: Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible Originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com YMO podcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash YMO podcast. Thank you for your support.
1: And now, on with the show.
0: Gentlemen, what's your favorite movie tagline?
2: This one for me was obviously always going to go in the direction of horror movie taglines because I think... One of the most iconic taglines just of all time is, you know, in space, no one can hear you scream. But I think the best one is actually for one that's not the greatest movie in the world. It's pretty solid, but it's just such a great tagline. That's such a great build-off as a sequel. And it's the tagline to Jaws 2, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. That's just, like, yeah, that's everything you need to know about this movie. It's, you know, it's another Jaws movie, but it's like... It's so evocative. It it just gets the job done so quick and so cleanly, and it lets you know basically what you're about to get yourself into, and it's more shark action a bit.
3: I like the fact that Tom and I both have picks that are from not particularly great sequels. Um, Mine involves a bit of a rant, because it's also part of my frustration. And Tom's going to know where I'm going with this, but uh, a convention gets introduced in terms of these taglines, and when they stop doing it, I get mad. My pick is not Lethal Weapon. (laughs) The tagline for Lethal Weapon in 1987 is two cops, Glover carries a weapon, Gibson is one. He's the only LA cop registered as a Lethal Weapon. Two years later, Lethal Weapon 2, 1989. The tagline, the magic is back! Okay, fine. Lethal Weapon 3 in 1992. (laughs) The tagline is, the magic is back again! (laughs) And it never fails to make me laugh that they were just like, so the second one, the magic is back, fine. The third one, the magic is back again. For some reason, the simplicity of that tagline, because there's only one of two options. One, extremely lazy. Or two, they are aware of how funny it is that that is so lazy. And the reason I say there's a rant is that Lethal Weapon 4 in 98, their tagline is, the gang's all here. Absolutely not. You introduce the convention. The magic is back. The magic is back again. The next one needs to continue that. It's like how mad I got. I remember Tom, I was ranting to Tom about this. John Wick, Chapter 2. Good. There you go. You've told me that the conventions are chapters. Chapter 3, Parabellum. Why? It's just 2, 3. You've set up the convention. So, God damn it. Lethal Weapon 4 gang's all here infuriating. My favorite movie tagline is, The magic's back again. Just never fails to make me laugh. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria
2: the films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and
0: why they still matter. This week, we look at one of the first American satires to center on the Soviet Union. Bella Zadenberg joins us for 1939's Ninochka.
3: Our guest today is currently a senior editor at Yahoo. Uh, Her work has previously appeared in Us Weekly, Time Out New York, Men's Journal, and Elite Daily, amongst others. Bella Zadenberg joins us today to talk about Ninochka. Bella, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
3: Welcome, welcome, welcome.
1: You could say, "Privet" or Zdraštvojte, or any of the above. That's
3: interesting you say that, Bella, because I I would like to point out that normally you would say, like, hi, welcome to You're Missing Out. But, uh, you know, in this case, we could say, uh, Bonjour, c'est vous qui manque un podcast sur le cinéma? Or, uh, "Privet," c'est-vous podcast okino because this is a film dealing with both the french and russian people and our guest today is very mad at one of those pronunciations because part of the reason you're here of course is that you are uh yourself russian you and i have talked about your feelings and your frustrations about the depictions of russian people in cinema particularly american cinema and how you feel like that's from your point of view that's not uh that's almost never positive, but also by your own admission, you know, especially before you and I met, you were not the most, uh, cinephile person in the world, right?
1: Right. But also I do feel a little bit like I'm on trial, <laughs> but I do feel like this episode was a really long time coming considering, I think like, even when you and I first started dating, which you we should have just closed up
3: top quite yeah. frankly. Yeah. <laughs>
1: You mentioned this movie, like from the jump. And then I didn't see it until like what this winter yeah. with you. And I, I remember walking out of that theater and you, like I wasn't saying anything. And I, we were walking out and you were just looking at me, like waiting for me to say something. And I was, I don't think I was giving you anything. And then we walked out and I was like, Oh, this movie rules. And. Yeah, obviously I've seen it since then, um, and I absolutely love this movie, and I did not expect to. Um, so yeah, this mo- this film was really great, but also, it's, it's really, it's counterintuitive to what I normally see, and how I normally see Russians portrayed in American media, which obviously is um, just not great. I mean, considering what is current, what the current political climate is understandably not great but this has been going on way before then too so
3: now in fairness uh you say oh when we first started dating I I brought up the movie that's not entirely true the truth is that you first heard about it because uh I referred to you as Nanochka because when uh, we yeah. first met we were maybe at odds because I was very much a-, a talker a lot of jokes a lot of pop culture references and you would just anytime I'd make a joke and you would stare at me just kind of coldly, uh, I would refer to you that way because there were so many interactions we would have that were very much like the scene in the film where it's uh, you know, well there was a fella named McGillicuddy and a a fella named McIntosh, I wish they'd never met, like that was kind of (laughs) what it was, you would just kind of Respond, you know, so so that would any time you, uh, you know, responded in any of that kind of like anything lovey dovey is gross and 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 for for idiots and anything like that. How many how many romance films we'd go see where you were just like, I think everyone involved should die. Like any time you would pull one of those, I would uh I would pretty that way. And then so so that's that's changed. It, no, so it, it no. has <laughs> a little. It, we get there from t- there are times where we watch the break happen more and more. You know, somebody who. Not to sell them out too much, but uh, somebody who, when we first started dating, would see little kids running around a place and go, disgusting. Well, when that little kid in the row in front of us during Doctor Strange 2 went, Thanos? Somebody may have found that very amusing this time. Uh, somebody may have thought that was adorable. So, you know, they, we're, we're getting there. Um, someone's changing a bit. But I, I say it because one thing you would bring up a lot is you would talk about your frustrations with how Russians are depicted in film and i would try and you know argue to a degree that 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 wasn't always the case that there there has always been russian stereotypes in cinema but they aren't always evil or villainous and this is a film obviously that i would i would bring up quite a bit yes you're right we we saw it we saw it at the film forum right they were doing the yeah. doing the garbo it was supposed to be a a four film day and then uh, we forgot what day it was, so we only made it yep. for. I'm trying to think. They were, or I think they were showing. I think the first one was Flesh and the Devil, then Anna Christie. I think we missed both those, but we made it there in time for Anna Karenina, and then they closed out on Ninochka, which were both they were both 35 millimeter prints, right? Am I crazy? I think we saw them 35.
1: You're asking the wrong person. That's true.
3: Okay, we saw. them. <laughs> And it was, you're right, it was great, because we left Anna Karenina, you really, you know, enjoyed that, but then we went back into for Ninojka, I was very nervous, uh, because it is such a comedy, and um, as you noted, you enjoyed it, we got you the, you have the, the biography as well, right?
1: Yes, I do, by um, Robert Gottlieb.
3: So you saw it over the winter, you saw it again. Uh, Tom, was this your first time seeing Ninochka?
2: Yeah, first time, and um, because it was my first time, and it was uh, honestly a movie I didn't know anything about. Like, no, no context clues what this movie was going to be. I kind of just leaned into it and watched it as, bl- like, blind. And uh, pleasantly surprised the whole time. It was uh, uh, a very charming movie. A very charming movie helped uh uh, uh Thor my black heart for, for two hours. And made me say, well, I don't want to see anybody in a happy relationship right now. But, alright, I guess <laughs> these two can be okay.
1: It's funny because like the first time I watched it, I absolutely fell in love and I wanted them to be together and I was so into that. And then the second time I watched it, while at the end I also wanted them to be together, it took about 75% of the movie to happen for me to want that. Um, Because the first 75% of the movie, I hated Melvin (laughs) Douglas. But then I ended up loving him, so it all worked out.
3: I mean, I saw this, I think, for the first time when I was very young. I think it was like one of those Turner Classic movies, uh, films that was on. And I think somebody in my house was like, oh, that's a classic. But it's not a movie that a kid can get. And not because it's not funny, but number one, there's not a lot of slapstick humor. And number
2: two... biggest Biggest thing I can hold against it. No slapstick. Slapstick's the best.
1: I would argue that there is quite a bit of, like, slapstick and physical humor in it, though. I but I, I mean, I, yeah, I, considering what, like, is super popular in Russia, that is exactly what this movie is.
3: But I'm I'm saying, we'll, we'll get into that more in a second, but what I mean is just more, like, when you're a kid, for, like, a child, like, part of the stuff that, like, there are certain comedies that when you're a kid you can still click with because even though the jokes and the premise don't land, like, we recently did Bringing Up Baby. And Bringing Up Baby lands for you no matter what age you are because a lot of the humor, even like physical humor, requires some level of stakes. But at the end of the day, when there's a big tiger and somebody pulling on its tail, you understand that at any age. I think that this is, you know, Nochka for me when I saw it the first time didn't totally land because most of the comedic premises rely on you understanding the cultural differences between the two of them. And remember, you know, we're born in 1990, like the Soviet Union is not a thing. And we don't really like there's no understanding on on, uh, a a kid's end of like,
2: we we, we do get half, I think kids of the 90s would get half of the cultural stuff going on. Because if you know, kids growing up in the 90s, we had Looney Tunes. So we already knew that the French were just Mm -hmm. shitless, horny animals. And uh, so we didn't get the stereotypes that Russians are fuddy duddies who only like when Yeah, that's uh, the thing, like the fall. stereo
3: that, that that, you know, Bella has talked about the um the stereotype of Russians in film, and I think one thing I would try and point out is, yeah, if you're looking at kind of the Russian stereotypes that we inherited from like the Reagan eighties onward, it's always they're spies, they're villains, they're this and that. But it is interesting that in like the thirties and forties, the Russian stereotypes that we rely on comedically in film are they're very uptight. They're very cold and high-minded and intellectual, and they're always talking about the common man and all that, which is, you know, it's a more uh, it's a more playful kind of uh, stereotype that we have in films for Italians and French and you know those kind of things. But I, so that's the first time I saw it, and i, I didn't really la- it didn't really land with me as a young person. And then I watched it years later, I think, just out of college, and suddenly was won over on this thing because at that point I knew who Ernst Lubitsch was. And then I saw Billy Wilder's name on the script, and I knew, you know, I, I adored Billy Wilder uh, for Some Like It Hot and so many of the other comedies that I'd seen. But yeah, so then I've watched it several times since, and I, I just, I continue to be won over by how well it works. But before we get into all of the things that made this film great, all the things that make this film matter, let's talk about what the registry had to say. So here's what the Library of Congress had to say about Ninochka. In this sparkling romantic comedy, when a beautiful Soviet emissary, Greta Garbo, is sent to Paris on state business. She discovers how the charms of Paris and Melvin Douglas can melt even the most stoic Soviet, and jeopardizes both national honor and her career. Garbo personifies director Ernst Lubitsch's sophistication and style, delivering dialogue cooked up by Billy Wilder and partner Charles Brackett to reveal that the Swedish actress is not only a consummate dramatist, but that, in fact, Garbo laughs, as the ads touted. A trio of Russian delegates played by Sig Ruman Felix Bressert, and Alexander Granich deliver some of Wilder and Brackett's most satirical lines. So that's what the National Film Registry had to say. I also want to point out the National Film Registry apparently does not like Walter Reich, the third writer on the film, who they just left out of that synopsis.
2: Much like the much like the third yeah, Russian Kapolsky, at the end yes, the, with the restaurant.
3: <laughs> I always forget. Like I hate to jump ahead to the ending, but I truly, even when uh, Bell and I rewatched the take notes of this, I always forget that's how the movie ends. It's a weird ending. I always forget that stinger is on there.
2: It's a weird little bit. Right? I don't hate it, but it's weird. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I always thought it ended. I mean, always. Thought, I for some reason thought that it ended with a kiss, and then when it didn't, that
2: yeah. was... I always, for the
3: last six months, have thought it ended. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that note, when we talk about Granich, Tom, uh, do you do you know? I have it here. Uh, did you recognize the guy that played? Uh, not Granich. Uh, did you recognize the guy that played Kapolsky? No. Alexander Granich, who played Kapolsky, uh, you probably know him as Nock from Nosferatu. Really. Yep, every one of these guys had like such an interesting because when we the movie started, I was looking up on our last route. I was looking up where these guys are,
2: and it's been a, been a minute since I've seen Nosferatu, though. To be fair, yeah. and they don't—they look totally different. Like yeah, he like, looks totally like, different like, now. It's like twenty-five years later.
3: Yeah, Felix BreSSERT would uh, work with Lubitsch a couple times. Uh, for folks listening who have seen Shop Around the Corner, he's in that Felix BreSSERT who plays Bullionov. Uh He's also Greenberg in To Be or Not to Be, where he gets the great. Um, half not a jew monologue um and sig Ruman, who plays ivanov uh was also in to be or not to be he plays the character known as concentration camp Earhart. so for anybody you know, that's yeah it's uh we we haven't watched to be or not to be but when you when you see it it's uh it's it's a weird thing that Lubitsch manages to make play for laughs um which is a fascinating thing is that like You know, Bell and I were talking about this the other day where there is this fascinating thing in the 30s and 40s where these directors who came from Eastern European countries, who came from Germany, who came from Poland, who came from Russia to the US, tackled the war and tackled the geopolitical conflicts in such an interesting way in in film. I mean, obviously, uh, something we talked about, and you know, European, another film that comes out the same year as Ninochka is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which is Frank Capra. And when we did our episode, we talked a lot about Frank Capra's perception of America. And obviously, neither Ninochka or To Be or Not To Be or The Shop Around the Corner or any of the notable Lubitsch films are set in the U.S. But there is just this interesting perspective on geopolitical relationships from them that I think American directors don't totally capture. Because there's just something about this film... I think that you know, Bella. You've talked about again Russians in film and, and how they're depicted, and I do think it's interesting that in this film, you know, one of the things I take away from it a lot is that while there are jokes at the expense of Russia and the Russian characters, there are also a lot of jokes at the expense of the French and at the expense of Melvin Douglas and those characters. So I, I think it's a bit more of an, I, I don't know if you agree, but I find it to be a more even-handed satire than other comedies, quote unquote, lampooning the Soviets.
1: Right. And so many comedies and action films and any films that do have Russian characters, whether they're the villains or not, they're the butt of every joke. They are, like you said earlier, they are cold and detached and just not fully formed characters and not fully formed people. And it's just a walking stereotype. Whereas this film portrayed them in, yeah, there were jokes made at their expense, as there were the French. Um, but it felt it felt like it was handled with kid with kid gloves. It felt like it was way more. Um, it had a much a, an infinitely more nuanced portrayal of of Ninaichka and and um, her comrades.
3: Yeah I, I think that that's um I mean and and Tom obviously uh you know Tom you've watched uh so many uh movies uh B movies and such from the uh, 1980s and and 1990s would you say it is fair to say that this is uh this film contains a more nuanced portrait of the Russian people than uh some of the Cold War era films that come later
2: Yeah I mean just by default that it is pre Cold War and while we're not allied with them yet, because they haven't shifted over to the allied side in the European conflict that's kind of starting at this point. I mean, Russia shifts what forty-one, forty-two to the allied side. Oh no, side? They...
0: no,
3: Russia's there much earlier. Uh by forty-two, Italy. When did has they shift? over to the allies? Yeah, so Russia is heard... actually more involved in in Russia's involved in in the war before we get involved. Um, yeah, later in the third in the. Like, 38, they are trying to, or somewhere around there, they are trying to compromise with Hitler's Germany. But then they very quickly kind of realize, oh, he's trying to get in here. And yeah, because when did like, they
2: when did they start invading in Russia? Because that was the winter of what? Like, 40, 39? Yeah, I think,
3: I think that's 40. I don't, so, I don't have a... So at it this is, point,
2: yes. so at the point of this movie's made, they either are still on the Nazi side or are about to be, or just, just left the Nazi side of the war. We're still like, it's still a thing of, we're not friends with them necessarily yet, or most of Europe is not necessarily friends with them at this point. But, you know, the Cold War brings out a whole new thing because when it comes to cinema and genre movies, which is where most of this Russian shit comes to, you know, you need bad guys, and the geopolitics of the time kind of dictates what the bad guys are gonna be. And so for a long time it was the Russians. I mean, Spielberg threw it back to the forties with the uh the thirties with the Indiana Jones movies, but by the time he gets to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, he's like, All right, we're in the fifties. I mean, it's gotta be the Russians. And, you know, I mean, that was even a big thing when uh Goldeneye was coming out, or they were making Goldeneye, because in between License to Kill and Goldeneye. The Soviet Union fell. So everyone's like, all right, well, what the fuck are spy movies going to do for bad guys? There are no, like, bad guys anymore. To the point where, like, True Lies did Middle Eastern terrorists just because, like, I don't know, we need something. And that's aged kind of poorly.
1: They're predictable, right? Having a Russian villain is always... Well, because it was, like,
2: 50 years, basically. Or, yeah, like, what, 40 years of using the same bad guys? It it's it's gonna get stale at some point and a lot of filmmakers that are doing this shit by the time the 80s are rolling around are not the most artistically minded guys, they're guys doing shit for Menachem Golan at, at, at Canon Films, which is just like, yeah, I don't know, we got leftover Soviet outfits, I don't know, fucking throw them on, Robert Forster's a Russian now, yeah, Robert Forster, he's gonna be doing a Russian accent, whatever, it's fine and it's not like, acceptable, or whatever, but it is just a thing of uh, You know, the routine, it kind of got old pretty quickly and uh, kind of, you know, you look at this and you go, why doesn't anybody learn the lessons from the ones that do this shit right?
1: Well, I think by default, Hollywood will stick to a sense of nostalgia or convention because it will make money. And we yes. are used to seeing... Don't don't quote me on that. I think I pulled that from the Vanity Fair article, but Afterlife. <laughs> but it's it's true. I mean, there is always going to be a degree of nostalgia to it because you, because because the American people are so used to seeing Russians as the villains, yeah. and they are so used to seeing a, a Russian bad guy. And the funny part of that is, is that it is so rarely ever played by a actor or actress that is actually from Russia. Or east in general, and it is so frustrating, especially like the amount of times Mike and I have been to a movie where there is a Russian character at all playing any role whatsoever. Their accents are always shit, and the only modern day actor that I can safely say actually does a good job is Florence P- Florence Pugh, and everyone else is absolutely shitty at
2: it. Well, you know, it's I mean, it's it's just a thing with Hollywood because I mean, how many times have we? thus far in the show and will have to continue doing so about Westerns and the portrayal of Native Americans where you go, huh, they just got a really tan Italian guy and they didn't tell him to do anything with his voice other than talk like this or like whatever. And it's just like, oh, so uh, it's, this is just the problem. I mean, you know, with Hollywood and American movies in general, which I don't know, I guess it's starting to change since it's easier to. I don't know, get Russian actors or Russian writers and hire people from the right places to do these things. But, you know, for a long time, they just didn't give a shit about realism. And they just said, yeah, whatever. The fucking the schmoes will will pay their nickel to get in, And they they don't care. They'll get the gist of it. We got I their think money.
3: First off, to clarify a bit of timeline here. Uh, in 1938, that's when Italy and France and the United Kingdom signed the the Munich Agreement with Germany. Uh, in later 1939 Germany invades Poland in September 39 Stalin waits to launch his own invasion it's not till 41 that Hitler invades the Soviet Union but they were already allied they were already teamed with the allies at this point I think what happens and our relationship with the Soviet Union at this time during the war at least in the United States is more akin to the fact that prior to the full partnership of the axis between Germany and Italy and, and Japan. It's important to remember that at this time in Europe, uh, Germany is making aggressive territory moves. Italy is making their aggressive war in North Africa. The Soviets are making expansion moves and the Japanese are making expansion moves. And until there's a clear picture of good guy, bad guy, There's a lot of touch-and-go feelings throughout the global community of, like, is this just a case of a bunch of strong countries going after other places? When it comes to why the Soviets are villains so often and things, I think there's an interesting element to this, too, which is look at what is done here in Ninochka in the sense that they are relying on a particular stereotype for each nationality, right? That the stereotype of the French is the absolute lovers, the total I mean, there's a reason they picked France as the epitome of capitalistic decadence, and then the Soviet Union as, you know, the original there are very strong political and cultural beliefs there. I think part of what made the Soviet Union such great villains in movies for a while, or such go to villains, is that at the end of the day the soviet union is defined by ideology right in a way that like the nazis made great villains for spielberg because when you put up that flag you tell the audience we know what these guys are about and the struggle that the bond films have had and the struggle that any films that tried to tackle the war on terror had is you need to have a 10 minute scene where a character like lays out like this is why the villain wants to do what he does. He has diamonds in his face and he ba- 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 and he wants to turn the world's water into candy or whatever the hell the motives are. But that, you know, when you look at that, when there is that ideology built in and we understand, like, this is, okay, we got it. This is, I understand why these characters, what these characters are motivated by. I think that what's so interesting about this particular film is that At the end of the day, it's easy to write this film or to take this film as a communist girl embraces capitalism, which ultimately is how it was first pitched as a logline. But I do think there's more to it than that because I really think it is using politics and, and personal politics and ethics to create that classic... Rom com dynamic of he's got to change a little bit to come down to her level, and she's got to change a little bit to come to his level so that the two of them come together. So, I think well, that that's something that this does in an interesting way.
2: I mean, because they don't even explain anything in the yeah. like, they don't, like they say, you like in movies now, they have to explain the politics and the plan and everything. It's just like, yeah, she's coming over from the Soviet Union, she's gonna look into this diamond thing. We get it, we get her. We get her thing. We get this guy's thing. He's a horny Frenchman, whatever. Like, like I mean, like it's that. It's just it's it's all about simplicity, and it's you know, it's yeah, it makes things a lot what? easier, and it let and it allows them to have a more well-rounded characterization for her, and then also having these three dopes running around that are not the typical Soviet Union, you know, bad guys you see in a canon Films movie or whatever. It's like. Oh no, these guys are kind of like, yeah, they're kind of doofuses, and they're working for the state, and it feels like this is kind of the only jobs they could get, and they're getting really, really, really tantalized by all the shit ca- capitalism has, and uh, you know, they're just, I mean, the bit where they they th- when she first comes in and they like, oh, do you want a cigarette? Oh, please send up cigarettes, and three smoking hot cigarette girls come up. She goes. I take it you were doing more than smoking. It's like, oh, I think it,
3: no. She, I think she says something like, "You must have been smoking a lot."
2: Yeah, something, or like, something yeah. like that. I think. I, like that. I think. Yeah, it's just like, okay, these guys. No, let's get this straight. Number one, those guys rule. They're the best. <laughs> Love them. Disney Plus spinoff series when? Um, <laughs> they don't own this one. This is an MGM picture. All right, all right give it a few years. Okay, okay, please. <laughs> Okay. Amazon like, series hey, with with the Ted hey, Lasso guys. Sorry, Bella, you want to say? Yes, continue. Oh no,
1: just a couple of thoughts here. One, um, France wasn't just picked because it's the antithesis of Russian ideology. A lot of former Russian royals that were disgraced as a result of the Bolshevik Revolution moved to France. Yeah. Um, so that was a natural choice. Mm-hmm. Um and the other part of it too is that they're the Oh my God, I'm forgetting the name of the three men now, but.
3: Uh, Bulianov, Ivanov, and Kapolsky.
1: Yes, them. I love how I am the one that can't pronounce their names, even though I should. They aren't atypical to, again, what you see in, like, made in Russian film. Mm -hmm. They are, they, they are the standard. They are normal. They are, yes, partially for comedic relief, but they are just, you know, they're normal guys. They wouldn't necessarily be seen as something out of the ordinary or extraordinarily stupid or extraordinarily funny they would just kind of be there and i think it's interesting that this film relies on them as comedic as as comedic relief when they just wouldn't really be seen as that in russian in, in russian film at all
3: well i think that part of that is they are and and you know i'm throwing this out uh you know uh for those of us that are old enough to remember this but they are the 1930s equivalent of the Trunk brothers right you know, for anybody listening, Tom, you know what I'm talking about, right? The um, the Steve Martin Dan Aykroyd SNL sketch. Oh yeah, okay. That were forgot. about the two. The yeah, yeah, it was a sketch in like the 80s, and the gag was they were two former Eastern Europeans who come to America and become so entranced by America that they they refer to themselves as. For anyone who doesn't know the Truck Brothers, it's the, we are two wild and crazy guys. We are going to find beautiful American women with their big American breasts. Like that was. Then, and I think that that's the beauty of Ivanov mean, and Bulionov and that character is that the joke of them, the key, the core joke of them, is just that they are somebody from a place of very little, or they had a lot of responsibility, or that they had to be moral in a certain way, and now they come to a new place where the morals are completely changed, and I feel like. That's that's not even a, a Russian joke, is like a joke on the Russians. In so far as, I mean, if you look at right now, you can go on Netflix and watch two seasons of Emily in Paris, where the uh, core, uh, the, the these, excuse me, Amelie in Paris, please, Amelie in Paris. You're right. Um, where this, I can't believe you watched. This. Where the sole <laughs> joke of it is, Emily is the Ninochka, if you will. She's super uptight. She's uncomfortable with any sexual talk. She doesn't like to be flirted with. And she has to deal with the very, very sexual French, which is a funny thing to think that, you know, 70 plus years after Ninochka, uh, no, I'm sorry, 90 plus years after Ninochka, we're doing it again, except now the Americans are the uptight moralistic ones in
2: in France. Right in the middle there, 80 years, 80 years, 80 years, 70, 90. Yeah, I mean, and and it's and it's honest, it's just simply the simple basis of a lot of comedies is it's just fish out of water look at these three dopes and then look oh no their boss is here and you just watch these three guys and they're never like treated like like subhuman or like like cartoon characters. they still feel distinctly human and they all, all three of the guys feel different from each other it's just it's it's the clash of cultures it's it's these guys getting seduced and it's like not even hard to seduce them is the joke. Like, Nanotchka, yeah. it takes a while for her to, like, realize, okay, I still believe in the Soviet cause, but, like, there's, there's some good shit in, in capitalist France where these guys are, the the movie starts with them talking themselves into getting a bigger room, <laughs> spent like, going to the more expensive hotel, the bigger room, They like, oh, well, we could split it into three smaller boxes and put them into smaller safes. Oh, but why would we do that? We could just get the bigger room. Wouldn't wouldn't Lenin want us to have the bigger room? It's That's, just. Oh, it's so. The, that bit too.
3: Because again, it's that wilder dialogue where it's it's um, off going, well, we could split it into three smaller boxes, and put it in smaller safes. That's an idea. And then Sig just going, but who says we have to have an idea? Just <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's funny, Tom, you mentioned fish out of water comedies because I was thinking about that and the fact that at the end of the day, that is something that. We all share in a sense. I mean, you know, I have seen even Russian comedies like to do fish out of water stuff. For example, could you imagine the hilarity of The Adventures of Italians in Russia? A very real film that I'm holding in my hands right now that if you <laughs> want it, it's it's a Russian Italian co-production and in truth, you know, in the case of both those countries and how their film industries worked, uh, this film was co-directed by uh Russia's greatest comedic director who had made their most beloved comedies like Office Romance and Enjoy Your Bath. And the Italian director made a bunch of B movie knockoffs of Conan and The Godfather. So Hell really yeah. just
2: summing up the cultures beautiful. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Italians, they know what they're doing, baby. <laughs> we know they know what people want in their movies.
3: But it's also like, you know, Pella, you and I watched, um, I, I don't know what the Russian title would be, but but here it's either Diamond Arm or The Man with the Diamond Arm, right?
1: Mm-hmm. What, what's
3: the What's the title, the actual title?
1: Uh, Brilliant Ruka.
3: Thank you. And again, even that, I mean, it's a very different kind of movie, but even that is just like a very kind of antics-based, like culture-based comedy. So that is something that kind of crosses over. And I do wonder, you know, if, I don't. I couldn't find much information on how this film played in Russia itself, uh, if it ever played there. I know that by 1940, anything that the studio system in America made that was less than flattering about the Soviet Union just did not get distributed there at all. Because it was suddenly like, they're our friends now and we can't play them as uptight. And every depiction of Russians during the war had to be like, they are the bravest, most heroic and wonderful people I have ever known. Like any anything about Russians in film during the war sounds like that that quote that they all repeat in the Manchurian Candidate about uh, he's the best. What was it? You you know what to talk about, right, Tom? The, the,
2: I, I know, but I don't remember off the Colonel. My head, whatever like, is the bra- greatest? Yeah, Colonel Shaw is the yeah. bravest, the most courageous. Yeah, about yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's same from coming. from what I see, my research, my brief research, uh, it was banned in Soviet Union okay. and its satellite countries. So I think there was just the. Uh, not not really into a movie where Greta Garbo learns how that maybe there's some good stuff in uh, capitalism and corny Frenchmen are okay.
3: So you're saying that the Soviet government did not take kindly to the line? The last group of mass trials went well. There will be fewer but better Russians. You think they had an issue with that line somehow?
2: <laughs> Great line. Best... That's
3: some that is some Iannucci shit. This script is. I, I will tell you this. You know, because uh, now Bella's seen it a couple times, and and uh, I've seen it many times, Tom. Every time you watch this, you're going to find new lines. It is one of those classic Billy Wilder scripts.
2: It's an amazingly written script. I mean, I texted oh. you the other, when I was watching it. Uh, when she goes to the restaurant and she orders, like, beets and leaves and, uh, and <laughs> figs. And the waiter goes, Ma- Madame, this is a restaurant, not a meadow.
1: It's so I'm just good. Like, good. No, she ordered raw beets and carrots. Raw beets, raw beets and, and be- carrots. Right. Raw beets and carrots. We would not get figs. That is way too indulgent. I uh,
2: uh, I it- <laughs> Excuse me for messing up, messing up the food order that I would never make myself. So, um, <laughs>
1: I wouldn't make it either. Beats are gross.
2: Now, I do wanna, I,
3: I do wanna talk a bit about, because uh, obviously, you know, uh, Bella, you're here for a number of reasons, but but one of them is, of course, that uh, after watching those two films that we went to see, you read Garbo's biography and you became very kind of fascinated by her and her story. Um, so, I did wanna talk about, you know, one thing you've mentioned to me you know, off mic is is her relationship with this film. So I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, she I mean, by and large, did not care for most of the movies that she made except for one. And it wasn't this one. Um the only movie that she really cared for was Queen Christina because she got to play someone that was a cross dresser and someone that, you know, had a female love interest and that she got to kiss and she got to say that she was going to die a bachelor. And um, it was just, it's really interesting to see Garbo play someone that, you know, in the beginning of her career, she played these really vampy, over-sexualized at the time roles. And this was, um, in Nina Chica, that was the one time that she didn't get to do that. And theoretically, it would be something that she would like because she wasn't someone that considered herself overly sexual. She dressed in men's button downs and pants and like, wasn't, you know a quote unquote like quintessentially feminine woman. But um yeah, she did not necessarily care for this film. She kind of saw it as a okay, like, I'm done and just moved on. And yet it was, I believe, her most, if not one of her most um successful films.
3: Yeah, I mean it's it and it's it's so interesting. I mean one of the things we should talk about a bit is the the tagline for this movie, as mentioned in the opening paragraph, is uh is Garbo Laughs. Uh, that's in part because, and now I got to look it up cause I'm feeling like an idiot that I'm, instead I have a document open here on Russian spy films. So that's not going to help us much. Now we're <laughs> off that topic. Um, Anna Christie, Anna Christie is the first one, right. So Anna Christie is the first sound picture that she does. Uh, and they advertised it as Garbo talks
2: and a little, because... uh, Mike, a little, a little more energy. There's an exclamation point in this, in this tagline. Garbo Talks! Um, all right, all right, relax. So, eat
3: snack, it's most. Um, <laughs> eat snack, uh, So they have Garbo Talks. So when they got to this film, because it is a comedy, and Garbo didn't really do comedies, they advertised it as Garbo Laughs. That was the tagline. All they needed is them. And, you know, if you look at film compilations, obviously this film, Ninoshka, has fallen kind of out of the public consciousness in the last couple decades, uh, I think because of the political situation. But if you look at compilations about like greatest films or even just like the magic of the movies, one of the iconic scenes that they will show alongside King Kong climbing the building and, you know, Rhett saying, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. One of the iconic things I'll show is her laughing and hitting that table. It was just one of those landmark uh, memorable movie moments. Uh, it should be noted. Uh, some people like to point out that Garbo had laughed in other movies before. But most of those laughs are like an Anna Karenina when she's laughing playfully at the child that she's never going to see again, trying to hold back tears. So that doesn't really count, I think, as a genuine, joyful laugh.
1: She actually had a film um, prior to Ninochka where she was portrayed as someone really happy, but it is the one lost Garbo film. Yeah, of course. It so is, yeah. who knows? She played a happy wife and she was running around in a little house dress and was very... Uh, theoretically very happy but there are conspiracy (laughs) theories it was actually found in a moscow archive so somehow it makes sense um but there is one conspiracy theory about her laugh in ninochka and that is that she didn't actually laugh that it was dubbed over
3: interesting like as in she's pretending to that that she's pantomiming but they added somebody else's voice
1: there is this is what I read in the biography. Um, and there's a theory out there that her laugh was dubbed over when Leon falls off the chair. So it I a lot of people think that because the laugh doesn't quite match up with the sound. But I didn't notice anything, so maybe That's- um someone more eagle-eyed. Did. <laughs> That's
3: also that feels like one of those things where I don't know, man. If you watch a lot of old movies in HD now, the sound doesn't line up. That was one of those things where, like, in 1939, they were probably just, like, taking cigarette hits while they were editing the movie going, no one's gonna notice, right? This thing's gonna play in a theater for three weeks. They're barely gonna see it. And then when you watch in HD, there's so many things. We did another movie recently where I talked about how many lines seem to be ADR'd in later. But I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe that is a conspiracy. Maybe, you know what? Let's call up uh, Sean and Carrie McCabe. They've got the Conspiracy Theory podcast. Let's get them on this one. Let's do a full episode on Garbo's fake Nanosha laugh.
2: We got to roll this into a queue. somehow. Garbo's <laughs> fake happening. laugh is, is that's is, what pulls is, it all together. We, we, you'll hear you'll hear Garbo's fake laugh emanating from the skies, and JFK Jr. will finally appear.
3: <laughs> but um, but no, I, I think that's so interesting.
2: Um, they
3: bring that up because I mean there is something about Garbo I was thinking about one of the notes I took that's so fascinating is that you know and this is a slight spoiler for what we'll talk about at the end but that this is Garbo's final Oscar nomination for this movie and then after this she makes like one more movie and then it's done In, by 1941 she is done acting meanwhile Melvin Douglas goes on to win two Oscars One in 1960 something, and one in 1970 something. One for HUD and one for being there. And I just think it's so interesting that you look at this movie, and it is (laughs) the—it's the exact cross section where her career is. This is either, if you want to call it the peak, uh, or at least like this is the precipice before the end. And Melvin Douglas, if you look at everything he had done prior to this. Mostly not like mostly movies nobody talks about anymore. This is the first Melvin Douglas film that anybody really talks about, at least in terms of talks about him in. But then goes on to become one of our most revered actors. He wins two Oscars. He wins the acting triple crown because he has an Emmy, uh, a Tony, and and the two Oscars, and has this just incredible run. And it's such an interesting intersection for them, especially the fact that both of them spent their final years living in New York. Both of them died in New York. Douglas dies in eighty one, I wanna say, and then Garbo dies in ninety. Am I right about
1: that? Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She died on like, I think it was somewhere like on the Upper East Side. Like that building is still there. Her um apartment was actually up for sale a couple of years ago and I was and by very tempted I mean there is no way I could afford that. But still yeah. we could yeah, sell he, the cat. He died, in, he
2: died he we'll died in eighty one. She died in ninety yeah. And she
3: I mean, that's that is one of those things that is wild to think about in terms of like, you know, when you hear about Veronica Lake, who I think has a similar had a similar relationship to her work in terms of like at a certain point, she just kind of stopped acting and was just like, yeah, I'm fine. I, I'm I'm good. And she never loved a lot of the movies she did. But Veronica Lake, you know, she had some, some health issues and she was tending bar and she would take little indie things here and there. And you kind of at least knew a little bit about her. Uh, it's it's wild to or that she was kind of you know she just trailed off it's wild to think about the fact that Greta Garbo just existed in New York City for virtual almost 50 years after making a film that is wild to think about especially because she was so famous in her day like I think people listening now might not realize you may know the name because she's referenced in everything from like uh, everything old is new again to Vogue uh, by Madonna but you look, um, Bell, and I have recently been watching um, a lot of old Disney cartoons from the thirties. Um, Shocking. And, and the <laughs> amount of times that like, not only does, does Garbo get referenced, but she's caricatured uh, so often in the same way that like, that you could just see a caricature of her and know who she is the same way that like, you know, uh, a lot of us inherited knowing who Mae West or the Marx brothers or W.C. Fields are. Because of cartoons. Like, Tom, you've never seen a a, a Mae West movie, right? Or a Uh, a W.C. Fields movie. I don't believe so. But you know, maybe you don't know them by name, but, like, if you see somebody doing the, well, my little chickadee, you know what that is. Because you've seen it in 90 Looney Tunes cartoons, you know? Yes. Yes, I do. And Garbo was at that level where you could just show a a little picture of her a cartoon and, and people knew who it was it's crazy to think that by 39 she's just she's just i mean by 41 she's just out of the picture you know
1: and it wasn't even like a hard and fast stop either like there was never an intentional i will no longer make any films it was more so hey i'm gonna wait for the next project that i really want to be in and then that project just never came there were a few Projects she was interested in, but she just never wanted to pursue them any farther. Um, and she also just hated being famous, just one of those people that just did not want to be seen. Um, and you know, like she, I believe says in the film, she just wants to be alone. Um, and it's really fascinating to see someone that like, again, did just reach these extreme, like this extreme aimless status at the time and then just wanted nothing to do with it um and part of the reason that she did live in this like really secluded building in new york is because she just and it's like right by the east river like there is it's a uh, cul-de-sac like you're not getting in there um i just find that really fascinating about her that she just was um strangely similar to uh the character that she played where she just wanted nothing to do like she didn't necessarily want the fame she didn't want the recognition she just wanted to do her craft and be good at it and then be left alone outside of that and
3: it's interesting too in terms of you mentioned the the want to be alone i mean that that line originates in i think grand hotel which is right am i wrong
1: maybe i um she has said that yeah, she, she definitely says
3: it in Grand Hotel. Yeah. Now, Grand Hotel is the only movie she was ever in that wins Best Picture. Um, I think it's like the fourth or fifth Best Picture winner. It's Grand Hotel. Um, Grand Hotel, yeah. And so in and that had become so famous and so associated with her and lampooned in so many cartoons and other things that Ninochka does a riff on it. Because you have that moment where she's talking to the the butler, who she calls little father. And has that, you know, go to sleep, little father, and then dips into what I think is so fun about this is that she does the line, we want to be alone, in her doing an impression of people's Greta Garbo impressions, right? That she drops her voice a little octave.
1: I see it as more, and I mean, you kind of see this a lot in her personal life, too, where she was... As I mentioned er- earlier, somewhat, she was really entranced by, um, I guess, the, the lack of bin- of gender binary. She loved to, again, wear men's clothes. She wanted to, or I guess I can't say that she wanted because I am not her, but um, she found herself to be more masculine, I guess, than the traditional woman was at the time or the conventional feminine ideal was at the time. Um, there's this really great line from that Gottlieb um, biography where he says, um, quote, how ironic is it that the most beautiful woman in the world would really rather have been a man? And I just I think that part of the reason she says it at that point in that film is because that is exactly something that a man would say when he is alone with a beautiful woman, that he just we just want to be alone.
3: Well, that's that's the other thing that I think is great about the comedy in this film is that i think that it's very easy if you try and make this later or or many people have tried to do the rom-com and, and and can't crack it in terms of i was you and i were discussing this when we were watching it which is number 1 i think the problem with too many romantic comedies today is they're very one-sided in terms of you know they they tend to know which audience they're playing to and they make the love interest you know whether it's the uh the often described manic pixie dream girl or just the perfect man where it's like, you know, the character we're supposed to find ourselves in is always like a chaotic mess. Who's got a million problems and is just, just like us. And then their love interest is perfect and, and, and ideal. And you kind of go, well, I see what they see in the love interest. I don't know what they see in them, but I think this does so well. And, you know, Tom, you made a joke up top about saying like, I don't want to see any people happy, but I'm, I'm happy to see them together. I think part of what this film does well and and plays to that is that it's not necessarily interested, and the best rom-coms to do is, it's not interested in you wanting to be with Garbo or wanting to be with Melvin Douglas. It's setting up a dynamic where those two should be together, and you want to see those two characters because they are so diametrically opposed, because they are what the other one needs, because... Melvin Douglas is such a kind of louse and such a guy who is coasting on charm that you want somebody who's going to smack him down and that his lines don't work on. And at the same time, Ninochka is such an uptight stick in the mud that you want to see somebody get her to get over herself for a little bit. And I think that that's the dynamic that really pops in this film.
2: And I, I, I do think it's, it's, Big, best served in that neither of these characters really ever give up on who they are mm-hmm. you know they never like like i said like she's still a communist at the end of the movie you know yeah. he's still a rapacious capitalist who's like he said he's willing to bankrupt russia by just opening up all these restaurants all over the the world so they just yeah. keep they just keep bleeding people that, that are going to defect and everything. You know, he's still a capitalist. She's still, but you know, he's reading capital uh, communist literature. She's starting to enjoy, you know, the restaurant in the Eiffel tower and all this shit, whatever, you know, listening, to, listening to music instead of the fucking news. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, they don't ever sacrifice the characters for the happy ending. They, they, they are who they are, but they do come to a middle ground where, They're the same people at the beginning of the movie. They just, they've let their shields down, you know? Like, you get that bit where you get the sense that he's kind of heartbroken over the Duchess. He's still got the picture of her on his desk, and then he puts it away. That's why he's such a, you know, a a walking hard-on. You know, she's so, you know, she almost fucking died in the, you know, the Communist uprising in 1920. So it's like you get where they're coming from and they're still who they are, but the shields are just down a little bit. And well, I think and I that's think... what a lot of these movies don't do. They, It's always, like you said, it's one-sided. It's always the woman who has to stop being such a goddamn bitch who wants to just work and be a, you know, a strong woman. She's got to bend the knee to a guy. And it's like,
3: eh. Or, or it's the Seth Rogen type who's got to get his shit together and grow up and be a man. I think the other thing you point out, Tom, when you say about him, oh, he's going to open all these restaurants and bankrupt them, I think what's great about that line is that by that point in the film, at, by that point, he has figured her out in terms of like the game of Ninochka and, and how to win her over, if you will, is that she is very proud of having principles, right? Yeah. And even if she knows that some of her principles are silly, She's never going to let herself admit that, right? When the three other guys, when Bullionov and Ivanov and all of them are talking about how much better things were in Paris, she's the one that's constantly going, no, things are good here too. Things are very good here. She's so attached to the party. She's so attached to her work that she can't fully ever denounce that. So what Douglas figures out is he has to be able to give her an out in the way that the start the film begins with ivanov bulionov and all them kind of doing the you know well let's make it so that we have no choice right like yeah. let's make it that we're not bad uh you know that we're not bad russians it's actually you know for the good of the country we're doing this and it ultimately ends with him saying you know to her like well you know uh if you if you go i'll have to keep uh corrupting uh, you know soviet envoys and she just goes well if it's between choosing between my happiness and the, you know, the good of my country, what can I do? And, like, obviously she knows that it's a put on, but they're, play- you know, she's playing into it because it gives her I-, I think the big thing is the balance they have to strike is Douglas learns, like, he has to allow her to be able to stop being a stick in the mud while retaining her dignity. And I think that that's what's so important about that ending and the whole way that this film plays out is that she's I mean you know one of the great bits is that what puts him on his heels is that he meets her just as a gorgeous woman on the street and he decides he's going to seduce her and when she just kind of goes like yeah I'll go back to your hotel I am mean, to your apartment I'll go back to your apartment immediately that you know as opposed to this being a more gross uh comedy like we have today where it's all about the guys trying to get the girl to sleep with him She's very upfront about like, yeah, we'll go back to your apartment and I'll sleep with you. But he's like, that throws him off. The fact that he can't use his charm on her and it becomes about like, no, I want to romance this woman. This is this is a wall that I need to break down. And I think yeah. that that's so, you know, I mean, the the great moment where, as you talk about, Tom, you know, that typically it'd be the woman who has this, that without gendering it, Per se, without doing like any kind of gag that's like, oh, he is the lady in this relationship. You do have that great moment where he comes in as the Lothario and he's trying to do his Frenchman charms. He lays a kiss on her and there's the confidence in his face of like, that's it, I made the move. She kisses him back and his head stays tilted back. And for that moment, he's now the woman in the rom-com. You know, he's now the dynamic they typically give the woman in the rom-com of, how can I make this person, you know, wow, yowza, you know, he's the, um, what is it they talk about in, is it Princess Diaries? I I hate that I'm pulling this bullet. You remember in Princess Diaries 2, she talks about having the kiss (laughs) with her her leg kicking up in the back? Um, Yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, Like, that, I just, I always remember that, because I'm like, it's the first time I ever went like, oh yeah, that is kind of movie shorthand. But like, that's what he wants. She gives him the the kiss that he has the leg kind of metaphorically kicked back on.
1: Well, she is a domineering woman in every aspect of her life, except without being domineering. She's just kind of forced to live within, within these really rigid confines of, of her behavior in terms of, um, in terms of her job and in terms of how she fits in within Russia and within her, um, within her, role as a communist and comrade whatever she is um but this is the first time that we really see her take charge in a way that is entirely outside of her scope of work and also um i think is a reflection of no that is she has that in her and she is she doesn't know how to she doesn't know how to be around men in a way in or a romantic partner of any sense in a way that is submissive at all or is soft at all she is going to be very hard and semi-literally i guess in um in all aspects of her life
3: and i think that's interesting because you know what i was thinking about um to give our listeners more homework of finding movies in poor rips on youtube i was thinking about uh you and I watched uh a a Russian romantic comedy which uh, I know to uh some some listeners might sound like a uh, a contradiction but those do exist and uh they're fun but They're so good. But but you <laughs> you uh we watched one that is one of the most popular ones over there called Office Romance and
1: what oh, I think is so interesting so about so
3: What I think is so interesting <laughs> about that though is that that is an entire movie that plays out it is a similar in a way, it's similar in that the woman in that film, who is the boss of the company, it's about a, a subordinate trying to win over his boss, basically. That she is also uptight and needs to let her hair down a bit. But that at the start of that film, the dynamic is the, the, the male love interest, who once whatever, is just goaded by his friends of like, hey, if you seduce the boss, you'll get a better job. And like, your job will be better. And it's like, it is such a functional, mechanical kind of thing for the first half of the movie until the two of them discover that they actually like each other. And what I think is so interesting is that Ninochka is a movie that basically takes the woman out of an office romance type film, a a Russian, you know, film, where viewing love and sex in that kind of functional way, and then pairs her with what is essentially a watered-down Maurice Chevalier, you know, with a with a, with a a French Lothario, where everything is about pretty words, and everything is about the seduction, and everything is about playing the game. And I think that what's great is, for the first half of the movie, he is flirting with her, and he's playing the game, and she rejects the game entirely, and that's what frustrates him. You know, you have that moment where he's, she says, must you flirt? And he goes, well, I don't have to, but I find it natural. And she just goes, suppress it. <laughs> Which is, you know, one of the quoted lines in the film. But, you know, to bring up Tom's point about the end and him saying, I'm going to open all these restaurants. Her, another part of that that's great is her saying, well, if it's for the good of my country, it's really kind of the first time she plays the game. Yeah. It's the first time that she like decides to be, and makes the conscious effort to be flirty and kinda do things a little more like, yeah, we both know what we're saying in a way that he's been trying to do from the start. I just think that that's that, you know, every time I watch it, I get struck by just how well it strikes that balance, you know?
1: I think it's really funny that it wasn't even supposed to be Melvin Douglas at all. Yeah. It was supposed to be Cary Grant. Um but then they they wanted to have someone that would let Garbo shine as opposed to have it be the two of them. And also if it was Cary Grant, it would just be Way too hard to not immediately fall in love with him and call her a bitch and move on. But
3: this movie's an oh, this movie's a nightmare with Cary Grant, like because yeah, one, it wouldn't work. One of the things I noticed, um, and I've been texting Tom about these movies as I watch them, um, but Ninochka is kind of loosely remade a number of times. So, like the very next year after Ninochka, MGM makes a film called Comrade X. I have this right here. Uh, which is, it uses the same general plot, uh, but it is not an official remake of Ninochka, and yet its poster's tagline is the funniest love comedy since Ninochka, so they weren't even hiding it. Comrade X stars Clark Gable, and Tom, I'm going to set you up for this. I know you've been waiting for this one. And Clark Gable's co-star is Hedy Lamar. Hedley. There we go. I wanted to let you have that. Comrade X is trying to do the Ninochka thing, but it fails in a couple ways. Uh, what they do is they change the dynamic where Clark Gable is playing an American journalist in the Soviet Union who is sneaking out information about Stalin's oppression under the name Comrade X, and Hetty Lamar plays a uh, woman train conductor who he convinces to leave the country to go spread communist propaganda in America. But he's actually doing it because her father wants it. It's a mess, and I think part of why the movie is a mess. Uh, And it comes through again. So you've got Clark Gable and Comrade X. Then you fast forward ahead about 20 years or so, and they make a Broadway musical and later a movie musical of Ninochka uh, called Silk Stockings with Fred Astaire and Shid Sharice. And in that one, Astaire's character is an American movie producer. And instead of fighting over jewels, they're fighting over a Russian composer who's living in France, but Russia wants him to come back. And also very bizarre, uh Bell, you haven't seen Silk Stockings, right? I, I
1: don't I think so, yeah, no. Yeah. Uh
3: I I'm gonna make you watch it because it is so weird to see musical numbers done uh in this story, because it's not a thing that lends itself to a musical. And Tom, you should watch it because Ivanov is played by Peter Laurie. So
2: yes. uh you and he's playing a in a restaurant. Her he he's, he's
3: the one that gets that line, Tom. I'm You're not kidding
2: going to eat at my restaurant it's a very nice place for
3: families and he's the one that does the line where he goes and Piroshkis. and you're like it sounds like a threat when you say that peter (laughs) um but silk stock the reason i bring both of those up is that part of the reason the dynamic doesn't work in either of those films is that clark gable and fred astaire are leading men they are very good leading men but you're immediately on their side. When they're being seductive, they're being, like, they're, they're too charming. They're too seductive. And so, Bella, like you noted, like when the woman initially rejects him, you just kind of write her off and be like, what are you talking about? That's Clark Gable. Or what are you talking about? And the joke is entirely on the Ninochka character. um, Or uh, in Comrade X, her name is Theodore. But the joke is entirely on them. What I think is so great about melvin douglas and ninojka is that he's kind of a twerp you know like he's kind of he's one of those guys where he's charming and flirty because melvin douglas and i i say this with all respect for melvin douglas you're right he's not cary grant he's not clark like clark gable's a guy who as soon as he shows up on screen you go who the fuck is that he's a very handsome man i think the thing about melvin douglas is he's he's fine looking Right. Like he's not a particular. He's a 7.5.
1: Right. You know, it's funny. I have, um, I'm just looking at my notes and two of the line, like two of the first lines I have when we rewatch the movie is quote, God, this man needs to shut up. And then the second line is she is way too good for him funny enough, and... those are two
3: things you said <laughs> after our first date, so, you know Yeah, I was very... gonna
2: say, those, yeah. those weren't okay. notes about the movie, they were just her thoughts like, <laughs> about what led her to this place That's
3: Can I tell you, that's,
2: that's what I've been worried about this
3: whole episode, is that it's just eventually gonna turn into me going well, I mean, the problem with Ninochka is she just kind of gets too swept up in, in work, and she really needs to, you know, chill sometimes, and Bella just goes, well, the problem with Melvin Douglas' character is he needs to get more serious about his fight, and just becomes just
1: It's really, I have so many notes that are way longer about why Melvin Douglas sucks. Not the actor, but the character. And I'm not going to read any of them because that would be... I would open myself up to too much ridicule, but...
2: Well, well, number one, he's a dirty Frenchman. There you go. Number two, (laughs) that mustache. That mustache is...
1: I like the mustache. I think it's cute. It's a little... Okay, maybe not, but it's I don't know. it Works for
3: him. I like that your maybe not was as though you saw the look in my eyes that said should I grow the mustache, and then you had to quick, quickly go no, no. Don't do that
2: don't don't you dare
1: please don't
3: please Tom, don't do that. And this is where
2: Tom comes in and says Mike can't grow that mustache. That's true. I really
3: can't. Um, I have an invisible. <laughs> Thank God. I have an invisible beard. Like I can't do facial hair. My hair's too light. But no, I I think that Mel, it, That's the thing that makes this movie work is that Melvin Douglas. Is, I mean, you know, you mentioned uh, Greta Garbo being this beautiful woman. I mean, you know, in the Ninochka character, Ninochka is a gorgeous woman who does not know or care that she is attractive. Meanwhile, Melvin Douglas is an okay-looking guy who mostly gets by on the fact that he is so charming that... You you said, Bella, you said he was a
1: 7.5, you said. But, it depends how drunk I am, but yeah.
3: Right. But that's the thing. But, but he's 7.5, but he's one of those guys who understands that he is just attractive enough that if he is really charming and cute and flirtatious, that's going to be what gets him all the way. He knows honestly, he's not Clark Gable.
1: Honestly, if he was like in sweats and like a, you know, a t-shirt or something, he would be a solid five. But I think the suit, like the really well tailored suit brings him up to his 5. I subject. just like, imagining like Melvin Douglas in sweats. At a.
2: I feel like that's a very pointed, very pointed uh, description. <laughs> Because uh, I was going to say, well, Bella, you must be drunk a lot for that to be a 7.5. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. No, but you know, um, I, I do want to jump on that and
3: what you're saying about the suits, because I do think that's interesting, too. One thing I noticed on this viewing that I hadn't noticed before is that the costuming in this film is very conscious. When Oh, yeah. When yeah. Ninoshka first, because it's interesting that the film uses color so well, despite being black and white. That when they first have their encounter, when Ninochka and and um, and Melvin Douglas first meet, I I have to remember his name. Uh, is it Count Louis? I keep calling it's Leon. Leon, thank you. I keep calling him his actor name and her character name. When they meet, uh, she is in drab gray, very like very Soviet, you know, sexless clothes, and he is in a sharp, tailored, black tux white shirt so that when the two of them are on top of the Eiffel Tower even though the movie's in black and white he looks so much more colorful than her because the shades that he's wearing are so dynamic and then as the movie goes on once she's charmed by him and she after the laugh happens you notice there's a little more frill to her shoulders and then ultimately she wears the dress but conversely he is moving a little more away from the tux so that when they finally meet in Morocco, his suit is gray. You know, he's taken down that black and white and that tux to now more of a gray suit. Her clothing is a lot less drab and rigid. And I thought that that was just so interesting, the way that they communicated, the way they kind of come together via that costuming. Especially because you don't think about the use of blacks versus grays when you're talking about black and white films the same way we talk about the use of color in a gun with the wind or a wizard of oz or something you know
1: yeah well speaking of that um pivotal dress moment i think it might at least indirectly be inspired by um this portrait of princess anastasia wearing a really similar gown it's that same off the shoulder with the wide puffy sleeves and the jewels like essentially in the exact same spots and i really wonder if they actively chose to inspire a you know her like big reveal gown on something that her character would have frankly hated and obviously would have Set as a waste of jewels and fabric. In the
3: portrait of Princess Anastasia, is Bartok the bat in that portrait, or do they leave him out of that
1: one? <laughs> um, um, maybe he's in the shadows.
2: Why did I have the name Bartok so ready? Because you are a deranged adult <laughs> way into animation, you absolute <laughs> dork. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but no, I think that's a great point. And, you know, the other thing I thought was interesting in this film, watching it, especially this time, is. You know, it's something Tom and I complain about a lot now with modern films and how uh, modern film going on Twitter will. uh, I I think my favorite I think about this so much because if Tom just chose a weird delivery when he said this and now it lives in my brain, even though he may not remember saying it. Which is when we talked on our Oscar episode, we talked about Trial of the Chicago 7. Tom said, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Films don't look into the camera and go socialism. (laughs) <laughs> he is good and shook his face like Nixon. But I think about that a lot in terms of like, you know, there's so many movies now that try to have any nuance and there are people online, you know, the a lot of the film Twitter crowd will be like, well, this is mildly critical of my perspective and my politics. One thing I think is interesting about Ninochka is, look, it is a movie that depicts... Stalin's Russia as drab and oppressive, you know, in its final scenes, but even so, one thing I think is interesting is even though the plot hinges on jewels that were confiscated from former Russian royalty, the movie never actually explicitly condemns that. Like the movie does not, you know, your your if this movie has a villain it is the Countess. She yeah. is an asshole. But also that the movie never says like that the movie basically presents the point of the Countess goes, I can't steal these jewels. They're mine. And Ninoshka goes, they belong to the people. They were paid for with the, the blood of the people. And the movie
2: just presents those two arguments and doesn't actually slam it, you know? It it's just, you know, you know, like you said, you can't have nuance today, and it kind of just presents it as because you know it's still like it's it's still fresh at the time, you know, it's like people were still alive when that uprising happened, so it's like a thing where you could just say it. And the movie does just go like, oh you stole our jewels. Yeah, but you're an asshole, so it's kinda good we stole from you assholes. Because Jesus Christ it's been a few years and you're still being such fucking assholes to people. To the point where one of my favorite things about the movie, which goes to the way rom coms now don't do it, is that she never thinks Melvin Douglas did anything to her. Yeah. Nowadays, it would be she would think Melvin Douglas stole the jewels out of her, out of the safe and gave it back to the Duchess. And the Duchess would be like, well, yes, he did. So you should leave him alone because that's my man. And she would storm off back to Russia thinking Melvin Douglas was a bad guy. It's just, no. The Duchess Strip says, "Oh no, he had he had nothing to do with this. You should still leave him alone." But he had nothing to do with this.
1: What I find so funny is that in real life, um, John Gilbert, who Garbo was really close with later in life, um, proposed to Garbo. Garbo said no, so he went to the lady that played Swanna, Ina Claire, and they became married.
3: Ina Claire, so. who's fascinating because she has like almost no credits. Like no film credits. Yeah. Um. I also found out apparently she caused a scandal, uh, because she did uh racy publicity photos for 1932's "The Greeks Had a Word for Them," which is I believe it. <laughs> I want to take a minute to acknowledge the title "The Greeks Had a Word for Them," and that it's sounds... like we don't
2: make titles good anymore. That that's that <laughs> that sounds like the start of a Gilbert Gottfried joke or something. <laughs>
3: So Silk stockings is interesting because that in the musical, they decide to make it not about jewels and make it not about the confiscation of that and instead make it just there's this Russian composer who's living in France. Fred Astaire wants him to write the music for his next picture, but the Russian government wants him to come back. And that's why they send the envoys. The problem with that is that the Russian composer can speak for himself. So, the conflict of should he go back to Russia or should he stay in France, you can now have somebody go, why don't we ask him? Whereas the jewels are such a neutral and they are such a symbol in a way that it never has. The movie never has to tell you, should the jewels go back to the countess or should they go
2: to. It also goes to the writing of the movie in that it is the. The the Kickstarter for the movie, the plot of the movie, where Melvin Douglas is playing these little schemes for the Duchess, and he's doing all this because he's a greedy little Frenchman, which, you know, completely accurate. And by the end of the movie, he doesn't care about them anymore. He doesn't even talk about them anymore.
1: Well, according to Lubitsch, there is a reason for the jewels, and it is not one that you may think. Um, they are, quote, photogenic, and you can photograph them sparkling on a woman's tits.
2: Honestly, I was going to make a joke like that, and I'm glad it's just reality. I'm glad Lubitsch was just like, yeah, I like, I like tits. What do you want? I want, I want to heighten the titties. I want, uh, he would work Ernst, well with the Italians.
3: Ernst, Ernst, Ernst Lubitsch was the original Russ Meyer, uh, in, in a way. Um, but no, and the original Roger Ebert, I guess, as well. It's funny, watching these films like Comrade X and Ninochka, and all these films of the time they talk about Russia, it does appear like if there is a joke being made about Russia, the joke is not even at the expense of the concept of communism so much as like you know, there's jokes in this film and in X about the five year plan, right? And around <laughs> this point, the five year plan, which I think Melvin Douglas has the line, I've been a fan of your five year plan for the last fifteen years. Um <laughs> Yeah. There the um these the three of them, Bullyanoff, Ivanov and Kapolsky are selling these jewels because the country is going through famines and is badly in debt because of the disastrous failure of Stalin's implementation of a five-year plan. The movie never seems to be a criticism of Russia, but it is a criticism of Stalin's Russia. And it is interesting to think about the fact that, like, especially because, you know, 10 Days That Shook the World isn't that old at this point. It is interesting to think about how... Some of the point of view that this movie takes and some of these films this time takes is less a criticism of the Soviet Union as a concept and more like, hey, it seemed like you guys might have had a good thing going here, maybe a little lofty and ambitious.
2: And this whack job's screwing it up. You know what I mean? Which is an interesting thing. As Again, as the way the movie counterpoints everything, by making that kind of like, okay, well, the Soviet Union maybe wasn't bad they are counterpointing the opposite you know the capitalist side not with uh, melvin douglas's character necessarily it's with the duchess and that mm-hmm. she's so like very capitalistic that she's willing to do some devious horrible shit to this poor woman who did nothing to her just to get fucking jewels back that clearly she doesn't even need cuz she's living the high life just just fucking rolling around france like she's like, who the fuck she is, you know? It's it's very much like, well, communism's kind of not going so great in Russia because some of the, the, the planning didn't go well, but capitalists are fucking assholes. <laughs> well, and
3: also, you know, the I think the best jab at capitalism in this film uh, is one of my favorite moments, and we talked about it in a previous episode. Because this movie does have one moment that's very similar to a film we covered recently, which is, and I'm sure you, you probably noticed it too, Tom, which is both this and Sullivan's travels have a moment where a rich person talks to his butler yeah. to try and go, well, I understand the pores and the butler has to go. No, you don't. Uh, you know, in this case, it's that but moment making, where but also
2: making the joke that the, the butler's also kind of a moron. No, but see, that's the interesting
3: thing is, is that I didn't read it that way. The first time I saw this movie, I thought that was it. Right. The first time I saw, are you talking about like when he says, I wouldn't want to share my bank account with you that moment. Yeah. See, that's here's the thing. The first time I saw this movie, I thought that's what it was. I thought the joke was like, but then I realized, especially watching other films around this time, that joke is a jab at quote-unquote rich people because what he's really saying, because remember, he starts by saying, you haven't paid me for two weeks or two months or whatever. The last two months. You haven't paid me the last two months. And then when he says to have to share my bank account with you, That's a joke about the fact that a lot of these rich people, especially in the 30s, and especially like Melvin Douglas, who don't really have a job, they're not actually rich. They accrue a lot of debt. They spend like assholes. So the joke there, in a way, when the butler says to share my bank account with you, is basically him going, you're my boss, I'm your servant, but also... I probably have more. I would just be paying your debts if we shared money, if like, if we shared accounts, I would be paying off your debts because you aren't actually wealthy. So it's a bit of a jab at the idea that like a lot of these rich people aren't just rich beyond their means. They're actually spending beyond their means, you know, whereas the working class people in America and France are just working, making a living, you know, it's like the, it's like the Sullivan's Travels butler, who kind of just turns around when his boss is like, well, don't you care about the dignity? He's like, man, I just want to fucking clock out and go home. Like, that's it. I make a living. I go home. I don't care.
1: Mike, I feel like you're spreading uh, communistic propaganda in the powder spreading room pat-
3: One of the best. Another just great <laughs> line. Um, well, that, you know, one thing I thought about with this, there is a scene that I, I, I hate to do more of this. Like, well, today they wouldn't, ba but the moment when they come back after the you know you've been spreading comedy. Commun- she's spreading communism probably when they get back to the hotel room and they're both drunk and they're doing just a little bit of like there's no there's no drama to it or anything it's just them going back and forth and her saying she should be punished so he pops the champagne and she acts like she's been shot by a firing squad and drops and then he puts the jewels on her and she has. One of my favorite line deliveries is that adorable her going like, can I make the speech now? It's great. Um, one thing that strikes me about that scene is I think in a modern movie, and especially the way we talk about movies, I can see so many people going, why was that scene in there? It didn't, it didn't advance the plot at all. It didn't do X, Y, Z. Yet yeah, there's no advancing in the plot or anything, but it's such a great moment. You know, her little drunken, can I make a speech, him putting the the tiara on her, all of that, you know. And I think that there's, it's such a, a beautiful little moment where those two characters get to be, number one, get to be human. And number two, one thing I was thinking about is modern romantic comedies, because the dynamics are all about the romantic tension, I don't know if you guys find this too, but like, I can't think of the last time I watched a romance film where I can actually picture what those two are like in their day to day.
2: You know what I mean? Like they're never written like human beings. It's always like, Oh, well she's a high, uh, high executive at some, you know, blah, blah, blah company. And he's, you know, he's the sweaty fucking, uh, you know, bike riding surgeon guy. And they, they, you know, they do all these things and you're like, all right, they're, they're job descriptions, but what are they as people?
3: Well, and like you can have moments where they connect flirtatiously, but like you know, what are Owen Wilson and Jennifer Lopez actually doing on an off day? You know, what are they doing on the days that's just like, I don't know, we're just gonna have an around the house
2: day? Like, what does that look like? You know, whereas That's 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 why those that run of Apatow movies, you know, uh knocked up and uh, you know, forgetting Sarah Marshall and shit, they ha- they we may knock the movies that follow them for f- trying to do the improv thing, but those improv, though that run was so good because they knew what they they were at least be concise and tight. They allowed they had these scenes where it would just be them being characters, being people, well, where you get to know who they are. You and know, that's I,
3: why that. That drunken scene to me is so good because you do get to see like, oh, this is what they are. This is what they would be like. This is what they will be
2: like as their life goes on. It's it's the scene in Knocked Up where him and Paul Rudd go to Vegas and do shrooms, and her and Leslie Leslie Mann go to a club and get drunk and fucking. (laughs) It's just like you you have you you can just have moments where characters are characters instead of because I feel honestly it feels like most romantic movies now have to be like high concept and you have to like justify the concept and keep like oh well this is why this thing is happening now and this is why this thing is happening now it's just like what well, whatever happened to just two people that fall in love like why do we have to do a thing where Owen Wilson's a dumb shit in a in a crowd with a sign and, and JLo says sure yeah sure why not Owen Wilson And the other thing is yeah. this
3: is a high concept rom com but it, it doesn't still manages it,
2: to make them people. Because it doesn't focus on the high concept. That's the thing it's the high yeah. concept is just a MacGuffin, But like nowadays the MacGuffin is the movie. They, they have to keep justifying this high concept because now it it's like, what? We can't just watch two people talk and get to know each other. I mean, like, you know, they talk about people always want them to do another before movie with Richard Linklater and Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. But it's like, I, I, I don't know if there's a, if that movie can exist anymore, because like yeah. Linklater is still making movies. But like that Apollo 10 and a half came and went on Netflix and it's like a good little movie but it's, it's a Richard Linklater movie and it's just people doing things and yeah, people can't just do things anymore. And this isn't even like a grand thing of like, oh, we only make comic book movies. It's like, no, comic book movies are better at having scenes where it's just characters riffing and you get to know them. We can, like- Well, I mean,
1: you, you do have those scenes in, I think, modern romantic comedies of them just being, you know, going to Ikea and buying shower curtains. Like, you do have those, except they are in a montage and they are just, you don't really see them have much interaction. They're just really quick, like, you know, slice of life um, excerpts from their relationship or them falling in love or them married or what have you. Whereas, and I would argue that um, Greta Garbo and Melvin Douglas, you, that scene really goes to show that they do interact with each other as a, as just, people as opposed to just like we don't just fuck we don't just um argue about communism and capitalism and we don't just rip each other's clothes off we also have these silly interactions with one See,
3: another it's i love that you pointed that out that you know because you said those movies do have that scene but it's in a montage and i think that that's why i would argue they don't have that scene because even when when it's in a montage like that it's not giving us a a view of what their daily life is like it's more oftentimes when those scenes are put in a montage of them doing mundane things it's meant to show us them growing closer together it's like it's like when Belle and the Beast have a snowball fight you know or anything like that in in the Beauty and the Beast montage where it's like you it's meant to show us like oh look look at they're starting to get together whereas the beauty of that moment in Ninochka and the point where it happens is that's it. They're in love with each other in that moment. Yeah, We're not it's, seeing it's, anything grow. We're just getting to see like
2: they're, they're just. It's just a way to get time to pass to get to the next plot beat. It's not actually like ninochka where it's you, you, you get it. It's just yeah. Now, now, now they're in love, and now they're at this point where we have to be in in the movie.
3: Yeah, in a way, I guess what it is is like when it's in a montage, like *You Know And like Tom's pointing out, like when though when it's done in a, in a more modern rom com. Those moments, those little moments that they have together, are done as a way to build up. They're they're shown as a way to build you buying into this romance. Whereas what makes this moment, the champagne scene, so good in Inoshka, is that it's not working to convince you that they're in love. You have been convinced by the rest of the film, and what you're seeing there is the payoff. We haven't gotten our happily ever after yet, per se, But that is, oh, these two are actually in love. It happened. They connected. And now we get to just spend a little time with them happy before it all comes crashing down. And I don't think that a lot of romance films today take the time to give us the beat of them actually happy before a misunderstanding. Because, you know, like Tom pointed out, there's no point where she thinks Melvin Douglas lied or anything like that. Too often now, just as the characters share a first kiss, then it's like, oh whoopsie, it turns out I was paid to take you out on a date to the prom. Oh, I'll never get over you know, too many movies end at the first kiss. And I think that this so well has a moment of letting us enjoy them just being in love, you know?
1: Yeah, and I believe their relationship. And I think that like there are so few roman like modern day romantic comedies that you know, I don't walk away from it's that movie called Marry Me, believing that Owen Wilson and Jennifer Lopez are gonna stay together. I actually don't know if they stay together. I never saw that
2: movie. We have taken this movie out back and giving it the fucking day.
1: Tom <laughs> Tom, since you right. don't
3: remember what you say on podcasts, I'm gonna let you know this isn't as bad as how much you really brutalize first cow in our sullivan's travels episode <laughs> oh you go first. after first cow i go after what do you have against cows oh For my no god reason.
2: nothing <laughs> they taste Unfugful. great but i don't want to watch a movie about them
1: <laughs> the fuck oh. is wrong so, okay yeah All right, You
2: you 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 should believe their relationship number one you're in that relationship <laughs> I just Mike doesn't you. wear suits. Yeah, I This is this is as high class as he goes. A <laughs> brand new sex pistols t shirt. This is not brand new. <laughs> I've had this for years. Okay, well then it's less tattered than some of the other shit you've put through with your ever expanding and shrinking body. <laughs> right. I love it. just... that shrinking is becoming a drag now. <laughs> yeah, because you're like, you gotta just, just just pick a lane, bro. I you just pick a lane. Like, enough of this. Pick a lane. I've been, I've been this for 10 years. I know what I am. You, I don't know what the fuck's going on. Years, years of making fat jokes at me,
3: and you've now decided your new insult is, you're losing weight. And somehow it still hurts! <laughs> yeah, asshole, <laughs> you're in a-, still you've, still been so in a
2: you've been in a relationship for three years. Why are you trying to lose weight, asshole? you You should be comfortable. Enough of this shit. Alright, there's two things we gotta talk about before anything yeah. else happens, before we w- wrap up. One is a quick one. Guys. Bela Lugosi. I mean, come on. <laughs> Wait, whoa, whoa. What? this is
3: This is kind of a letdown. Last time Bela Lugosi came up on the show, you flipped a chair. All
2: right, because... And this time... Right, because this time he's showing up as a Soviet... I don't know what his rank Comatar? is. Commentar? yeah, I don't remember his rank. He's showing up as a Soviet Comatar. Pretty cool. And it's Bela Lugosi, so he can rock it with as being as accurate a Russian as, you know, Sean Connery was, being
1: yes, I'm from Russia. Can I just say, he looks like he fucks Like, more so than Melvin Douglas does at any given point in this movie. This man looks like he,
2: yeah. He looks like he fucks drugs. That's what he looks like.
3: I need to acknowledge that what I loved (laughs) is that by the end of Bella saying that sentence, I could see on her face a moment of, I'm going to text Mike later and say, don't, don't keep that in.
2: Um. Okay, but (laughs) Oh, I don't mind. (laughs) Okay, okay, because listen, he's a Soviet commentar. Last time we saw him on the show a week ago, I guess. I don't know what the schedule is. I don't know when these things come out. (laughs) He he showed up as the fucking devil in a Disney cartoon. That's so much fucking cooler. So I'm so, like I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The devil or a Soviet commentar? Eh, I'm going with the devil. I got a I got a fucking bleeding demon head tattooed on my head, on my face, on my arm. Come on. I'm gonna I'm gonna choose <laughs> <Whoa>! <laughs> What? Did you have a stroke? There, Chris? <laughs> I mean
3: You have kind, something on your face? Kinda oh, last so- month I did. Tom, the rapid fire with which Kyle is going to have to just take that clip out and extract it. The rapid fire with which you just, like a max headroom glitch. It wasn't even like you misspoke.
2: It was truly the max headroom just on my face, on my head, on my arm. (laughs) Okay. Because you brought this up before we even got to season two. A movie that references Ninochka, which the director told his lead actor to watch Ninochka. To base his performance off of, have you shown Bella Red Heat?
3: No, I have not. We have so many movies that we need to watch. All right, well, stop watching cartoons on the pile.
2: Stop (laughs) watching cartoons and watch big boy stuff like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jim Belushi fighting drug dealers. No,
1: that's no. All right, so Wolf Kell
2: told Arnold Schwarzenegger watch Nanochka and base your performance off of Greta Garbo. Do what she's doing and. I don't know. I haven't watched Red Heat in like 10 years. I don't know if it's successful or not. Probably not. It's not one of Walter Hill's best movies, but you know, Mike, make her watch it. Mike, Mike. Hey, 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 you're the boss in this relationship. You make her watch this. Definitely not. I am so very much not. Um, (laughs) I know this is somehow going to blow back on Mike, even though I said it.
3: (laughs) It's going to be like, it's not
1: going to end well for anyone.
3: So, uh, Tom sitting. a couple things, uh, one thing, a couple things I want to point out that I thought were really great in this, uh, and then I have one thing I'm going to throw to the room before we talk Oscars, but, you know, we're talking about things that a movie would do today. The iconic laughing scene, you know, the iconic Garbo laughs scene. I loved that because it cuts, you know, she's sitting at the table, all stone-faced, Douglas falls, the crowd is laughing, and when we cut back, she is in full-on laughter. And I think that a movie today would want to make a meal out of it and like show her start to crack a smile and start to go, (laughs) you know, like show her kind of like, oh, they finally broke the ice queen. And I love that we never get to see her transition into laughter. They never make it a, a big thing. It just cuts from her stone face to her out and out laughing that not only did he, you know, that when it cuts back she's laughing and he's indignant at first too that the beauty of that scene is not just oh she finally you know got the stick out and started laughing it's that he realizes that if he really wants to get her to loosen up if he really wants to connect with her he can't maintain his i'm totally cool i'm totally in control attitude none of his jokes work it's the fact that he needs to kind of eat shit for a minute for her to be willing just, to snap. up. Yeah.
1: Can I just point out that there is one semi-modern movie that also has a scene that's done equally as well as that. And that was in Magic Mike 2. When Joe Mangello shows up at that gas station and does his striptease and that gas station worker just looks so stone-faced. And then she laughs.
3: I need to acknowledge that not only do I agree <laughs> with you there, but also that this is the second time... Magic Mike XXL comes up on this season. And I think if you ask somebody, which episodes do you think that's coming up in, they're not saying The Godfather and Ninochka.
1: I was actually about to say, was it in The Godfather? Yes.
3: Because as oh, I as God. I once told, we, we can't get into it now. Everybody go back to the Patrick Willems episode. So the only other thing I want to point out is that when we're talking about these moments where these characters transform, like Garbo is incredible in this film because her transformation is so there for us to see the character that we meet at the end of the movie is not the character from the beginning and she does an amazing job kind of transforming but i do want to say one moment that i love uh, a very subtle moment is when they're out and the countess comes over to their table and kind of disrupts it and it kind of just says some shitty things and then leaves and then nochka's upset i love that it's quiet for a while that Douglas's character is so browbeaten by the Countess and so polite and formal to her, and he never stands up for Nanoshka. And then they're just sitting there, and Nanoshka's obviously hurt. And here's this character, Melvin Douglas, who, you know, Bella, you said one of your notes at the top is this guy needs to shut up. He never stops mm-hmm. talking. He's always got a line for everything. And here's the moment where it's so important for him to say something, and he has no words. Because up until this moment, he has always had to coast on his charm. And he's in Paris. He's in Paris where everything's a good time. You never have to think about the bad things. You can just keep drinking and spending money and having fun. And finally, in this moment, he's he needs to be more. And I love that he kind of just slowly works his way into... She can't say to him... You know, hey, I need you to comfort me. So instead, she just tells him to tell her a joke. Even though she hates all his jokes. Tell me a joke. And he starts to tell a joke, and then he starts talking about the two of them together. It's such a sweet moment because it's the first time that he's had to be fully sincere, you know? I think that's such a beautiful little moment for the two of them. Bella, did you have any more thoughts before? I've got one question for everybody, and then we're going to talk Oscars. Did you have any more things you wanted to make sure you noted?
1: I think that I have uh, just shared a lot of quotes because most of, <laughs> most of my notes are either quotes or Melvin Douglas, just so infuriating sometimes. Um, but no, I mean, I do want to point out because earlier in the episode, we talked about whether or not Nina Chka was a success. I have a note here that says over 400,000 people saw it in it's three week run in radio city music hall alone. So it was a success.
3: Well, at least so that's at least in New York. As we learned from Sullivan's Travels, it may not play in Pittsburgh. But uh... So, one question I do want to ask the two of you, and I, I have my answer to, uh, and Tom, I know this is only a, a one-time watch for you, but this movie has an incredible script. We didn't even talk much about Ernst Lubitsch as a director or Billy Wilder as a writer. That said, we have plenty of time for both, as many Ernst Lubitsch films are in the registry, including another one of Bella's favorites, Shop Around the Corner and To Be your Not To Be, uh, and Billy Wilder, obviously, we talked about last season. We'll keep talking about. Uh, we talked about twice last season. Um, we'll keep talking about. But I do just want to ask, great script, great comedy. What is everyone's favorite joke in the film? I'll start with, with Bella. What is your favorite? If you had to pick one, what is your favorite joke in the film?
1: I mean, I really do like the little father bit because that's great but i think my absolute favorite mike i'm sorry i'm gonna steal from I, you, you know because it's i think this is your to favorite too mine, yeah. um yeah in the in the beginning of the movie when i'm good, i'm just gonna keep well, enough, and yeah. I, I know see like i know what their names are now but i just it's too long to say it this is me with all russian names i say this as someone with a very long russian name um when they are trying to find um The person that they're looking for and they initially think it's that man and he just you know they're following this man and um when they're like oh wait is is this the guy this could be him and then he just does a heil hitler and they're like oh no definitely not him
3: uh, it it, you're right you you still that is my favorite joke but it's not even because of the heil hitler but it's the fact that they just go this must be him. I would like, hope not? No, but it like, as in like, as in them going like, this must be it. This must be our man. This is our man, obviously. And then he does the Heil Hitler to someone, and it is, it is, uh, Ivanov's reaction. They're all stone faced, and Ivanov just goes, no, that's not him. It's not, if, if any of them were horrified, it wouldn't be, the dead pad of just, it's him, it's him. Nah, it's not him. So good.
2: Uh, yeah. Tom, what is your, what, what might have been your favorite joke in the film? First one that comes to mind is the cigarette joke. Just because...
3: Oh, the the cigarette girls and the, you must have been smoking a lot? Li- yeah.
2: Yeah, because those three guys, they're fucking. Like, it's just... <laughs> 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 like, it's just like, oh, these guys come to France and they're just, they're just fucking. Like, it's it's just fun. It's a funny joke. I don't know.
3: But it's also the humor of, it's not just that they're Russian people. Because in Silk Stockings, you know, two of the Russian envoys they have in that, because they're theater actors and they have to sing... Are pretty good looking guys. It's the fact that it's these three bureaucratic dweebs.
2: They're fucking the in, gremlins.
3: In their but in their country, you know, they would not be anybody's top choice. But they come to France and there's something exotic about them. And well, so also... these three French maids show up and, you know,
2: it's because also, there's I the... think I think it's because they're they're misappropriating Soviet funds well, to get laid. Yes, <laughs> but I'm saying
3: there is that great moment where it's the one cigarette girl shows up. Then we watch her run out, and you start to think, oh, did these guys do something inappropriate? Like, they freaked this girl out. And then she comes back with two more, and they're all excited to go in, which is great. <laughs> um,
2: some of that ruski money.
3: Uh, now, uh, Bella, you might already know this, because you did a, you know, you read the book, so you know a lot of this, but I'll, I'll throw this out there. Uh, especially Tom. How do we think this film, Tom, how do you think this film did at the Oscars?
2: Um, I don't know. I'd probably won nothing, I think, because you mentioned Garbo didn't win for acting in this. But what do you so... think
3: it got? Did it get any nominations? What do you think it... Uh... Well,
2: other than Garbo, I'll say it probably got a writing nom and Best Picture.
3: Okay, and Bella, did you, I mean, do you know offhand or do you want to take a guess or do do you have it written down? Uh... I don't know.
1: I do not have it written down, and I'm kicking myself for not That's having fine. it here.
3: So, Tom, you are as right as you possibly could be. Uh, this gets four nominations, but two are for writing. It was nominated for Best Picture. It was nominated in that miracle year of 1939. So I'll do one more trivia. Tom, do you remember the other 1939 Best Picture winners? Uh, Best Picture nominees from that glorious year? I want to see how I remember offhand.
2: I don't remember what I ate for dinner yesterday.
3: Okay. Uh, (laughs) That is the year that Gone with the Wind wins.
2: All right. That's because George Cukor was supposed to direct this and didn't because Mm -hmm. he got pulled on to Gone with the Wind. Correct. Okay.
3: Yep. And then George Cukor also, two years later, directs Garbo's final film, Two-Faced Woman, where she is paired again with Melvin Douglas. That movie was very poorly received, and it was so poorly received that she was just like, fuck this. I don't want to do this anymore. Also, that movie's bad. Two-Faced Woman is terrible. And it's weird. They both look like they're 50 years older than they were in Anoshka. The other nominees are Dark Victory, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Love Affair, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Of Mice and Men, Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz, and Wuthering Heights. An absolute goddamn murderer's row of nominees. This is our, I think, third time talking about one of the Best Picture nominees. So to show you how good a year that was. No, four. Last season. The very first year of the film registry, they induct Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. This year, they induct Ninochka, and in future years, they will induct Stagecoach and Wuthering Heights, so a murderer's row year. Uh, Ninochka, as we noted, was also nominated for Best Actress for Greta Garbo, who loses to Vivian Lee for Gone with the Wind. It was nominated for Best Story, because back then they split the category in story and screenplay. Nominated for Best Story, it lost Best Story to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And was up for best screenplay, but lost that to, again, Gone with the Wind. Bo.
2: So nominated
3: four times.
2: To- nominated four times. To-
3: nominated four Bo. times. <laughs> Kyle could just cut your track. Nominated four times. Nominated four times. And four did not win uh, any of them. Uh, notably, Comrade X, uh, which was the uh, ripoff Nanochka. Uh, was nominated for Best Story the following year in 1940. Um, And as I noted, that was the last time Garbo would be nominated, and obviously Melvin Douglas would go on to win Oscars later on for HUD and uh, being there. Bella, I want to thank you for for coming on and for joining the show. Um, Did you have anything that you wanted to plug?
1: No, I do not. I am just a creature of endless fame.
3: (laughs) Okay. No social media, nothing you want to throw out there at the end, right?
1: No, I would say please follow me on all social media platforms, but please don't. I don't say anything funny. Okay,
3: um, and I just want to say on a on a personal note before we wrap up, uh, I'm really glad we got to do this. You know, uh, Tom and I had a previous podcast that was when you and I started dating, um, and I think you explicitly said, "Don't talk me about, don't talk about me on your stupid podcast." And now you're <laughs> on this one, and you did a lot of work to be on this one and you know when we met you weren't really uh, super into movies and i think that you know together um you've really discovered a-, a-, a new appreciation for cinema and 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 what film can do and that's something that we now it was something that was mine a love of movies but now it's it's something that we share and i think that you know um i, I think that's fair to say right that you and i now this is something that we share this love of cinema right
1: Yes. But also to quote, to quote the great Garbo, sometimes I just want to be alone. Sure.
3: But, but I'm saying like, that's something <laughs> that we, that's something that we, I'm being sincere when I say this, that's something that we share. Okay. It, that Right. That's something that we share as, as a love of film. And, and it's something that you come to appreciate. And um, and that's why you're not going to be mad that I just spent hundreds of dollars at the estate sale for former Paramount uh, head Robert Evans and bought a bunch of his ties and shirts. And everybody else, stick around. We'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. We're
1: done.
0: The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfred Woodard, and Leonard Maltin. And representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of you're missing out. Here are today's picks.
3: So I had a number of options I could have gone with the got a number of ones that I was considering from using the Russian aspect of this film to evoke other Russian set films, you know, like a Don Bluth Anastasia or something like that, which will find its way into the registry at some point and find its way into my picks at some point. Or I could have gone, I thought about, like, well, 1939 is such a murderer's row year. Do I talk about Love Affair? Do I talk about Goodbye Mr. Chips or Dark Victory, which are all good films that should be in? But the crux of this, to me, is two things. One, the mismatched romance, right? She's uptight, and, you know, and he's more of a cad. And and he needs to kind of get her to loosen up, and she needs to get him to step up and take responsibility, right? And there's even a moment, you know, the whole relationship with the the Duchess, where she just kind of reintroduces herself and kind of conveys to Ninochka, like, no, nah, he's kind of a cad, you know, he's not he's not your perfect guy, he's a bit of a. So I thought about that, and then I also thought about the fact that, especially you know, for a long time. Garbo laughs. The Garbo laughing moment is iconic. That this movie built up to a moment that just is, is burned into cinema history. And that made me think of another film that has a similar relationship dynamic and also has one of the most replicated and parodied and famous scenes in movie history that even if the rest of the movie was bad, uh you just go like, "Well, that's iconic." You know, uh, Kyle submitted to the registry last year, Spider-Man and even if the rest of Spider-Man fades from history, that upside down kiss is one of those moments that you're like, oh, this is indelible cinema. My pick hasn't a moment that's indelible cinema. And it is a romance moment between, you know, the lowly cat and the uptight uh, woman, which is one of those famous scenes in cinema, one of the most parodied scenes in cinema. Uh, two dogs sitting at a table with a plate of spaghetti and meatballs. And they're, slurping up spaghetti and they kiss it's it's 1955's lady and the tramp which was also the first animated film in cinemascope i thought of it initially because it's just oh well there's that dynamic there and what an iconic scene because it's more than just you know when we do this it's more than just kind of going this movie i like is like this movie we watched it's you know movies that deserve to be in the registry and i think lady and the Tramp's a great film but i also think that just in terms of preserving our cinematic history that scene you know the the spaghetti scene is iconic and walt originally wanted to cut it apparently but like you look at it and it's like it's been copied so many times it's just a perfect scene even if you don't like the rest of the film there's no argument that scene is iconic much like garbo laughing is so iconic in noshka um and the role that the duchess plays in this film in lady and the tramp gets picked up by that brilliant song by the dog peg of he's a tramp but i love him Lady and the Tramp, one of the great uh, animated films of all time, one of the great Disney films of all time. Beyond all that, for that scene alone, the spaghetti scene alone, deserves to be in the National Film Registry. So my pick is 1955's Lady and the Tramp.
2: So with my pick, um, it's a movie I had watched for the first time recently. And it actually, I think, fits pretty well because it is about a mismatched couple uh, where it's this, this kind of, like, political divide. And they are attracted to each other despite it, and they kind of change – well, the guy changes for the better, and the girl is the constant, almost kind of like Nanochka, but not exactly. But the basic idea is there with this sort of like clash of cultures thing, and it's um, – I think it's a very well-observed, very low-key, but very beautiful movie. It's very well – it's just very honest and it even ends with them sort of acknowledging, like, yeah, we love each other, but this probably isn't going to last. We might – we probably only, like, have a year together. And the girl goes, yeah, but what a year that's going to be. Imagine a year of us together. How great. And I just – like, that's – I don't know. That's kind of fits into the thing, like I said uh, a few episodes ago, where I, I tend to like the, the romantic movies where – the couples don't end up together because they acknowledge they just aren't gonna be copacetic despite their love for each other. It's a movie that stands out in this director's filmography, uh, and it's a director whose movie I picked a few weeks ago. Uh, it's Clint Eastwood's 1973 movie Breezy, uh, a movie that he directed because he he just found that he started he's starting to direct now. He wants so he picked a small movie that wasn't a big financial risk. Uh, it's still bombed because Universal didn't know what to do with it, which is one of the reasons he soured very hard on Universal and ended up becoming a Warner Brothers guy. But it's uh, William Holden and Kate Lenz, and he's this playboyish older guy, and she's this young hippie flower child who's just very like upbeat and positive about everything, and he's this heartbroken old man. And he's just like, why the fuck are you so happy about everything? Life sucks. But something about her just wakes him up and makes him want to love again even if it's like he said only for a year and it's got that Clint just honesty and that well-observed thing he does where he's just trust the actors and it's just it's it's nothing like even with Bridges of Madison County it's nothing like he's done while still feeling very Clint Eastwood and like I said when I uh, brought up Bridges of Madison County a few episodes ago I think he needs to be very well represented in the film registry because there's nobody like him in American films since he started directing and uh, I actually do love this movie I think it's kind of a low-key masterpiece and I think everyone should see it and I think being in the registry would get some more eyes on it. It just recently got a great uh, Kino Lorber Blu-ray disc so I'm glad that still uh, is alive and well so uh, Breezy 1973 guys check it out. Some might say you're missing out if you haven't seen it Let's all go to the lobby
0: Thank you again to Bella Zadenberg for joining us. Next week, Jeremy Swanton and Kyle Reed Haas return to the show for a pre-code musical, 1932's Love Me Tonight. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. I honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the
3: National Film Register.